warm-up question. Uh, what stresses you out? What stresses you out? What stresses you out? What's the first thing that pops up to mind? What stresses you out? Come on. Negativity stresses you out. Sure. Uncertainty stresses you out. Good luck. Yeah. What else? Stresses you out. Life stresses you out. Well, that about sums it up. Technology stresses you out. Rude people stress you out. Shut up. Don't care. Uh, uh, traffic, anyone? Traffic stresses me out. Ugly attitudes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're probably in the wrong church. Um, do you care much what people think of you? Does that stress you out? Just, let's just, just think about it for a second. Just think about it honestly. Honest. Do you care uh, much what people think of you? Are, are you consistently thinking about what people think of you? Yes? No? It depends. Scale of one to ten. How much do you worry about what people think of you? Zero. Four. Five. I hear one ten. Seven. Everybody shattered out at once. One, two, three. So an average of about 7.2 uh, is, uh, is what, I, what I get. I think for a lot of people, um, the way that people see you is nothing short of a terror. I think it's one of those things that completely dominates lives. I think it is probably more influential in your life than you give it credit for. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, one of my favorite Christian authors, anybody? No? C.S.? Thumb up for C.S. He theorized once, he didn't say this strongly, but he theorized that the desire to be in the in crowd might be the root of all sin. Um, and he was a fairly independent uh, fellow. The fear of, of people, fear of what people think, fear of man, it was called uh, back in the old days, is a huge theme in the Gospels. Uh, and, uh, and we see it played out in, 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 in rather vicious ways. You just take Jesus, for example. I have it on good authority that Jesus was a fairly nice guy. Um, he was uh, a pretty together person, uh, by and large. He was totally rejected by his family. They chased him down early in his ministry and tried to convince people that he was literally crazy so that uh, they could take him home where he was safe from his own delusions. Um, so some rejection there. Um, his hometown rejected him famously, uh, like in Mark chapter 6. Um, he could do no miracles in his hometown because they took offense at him. Uh, they found his behavior, behavior uh, offensive. He was, you know, constantly rejected by crowds, even early in the gospel stories. A crowd once tried to stone him to death. He was rejected by, um, by all of the religious experts, the establishments, the legal experts of his day. He was, in effect, rejected by his church. 
um, by the, the community of faith uh, he called home. Uh, they turned him out. Ultimately, he was rejected by his followers and his best friends. On the eve of the cross, they all left him, and uh, just a few hangers-on uh, stood with him when he really needed them. What people thought of him got him killed. Public opinion killed Jesus, and I think he experienced the uh, the variability of public opinion in a unique way. He came into Jerusalem in the midst of a parade, a popularity parade, and a week later the crowds were shouting for his death. I mean, he knew a little bit about what people think. He, he knew a little bit about public image, uh, Jesus did. So when he warns us, when he warns his followers not to worry about what people think of them, well, we should probably listen. When he says that's a big deal, uh, we should probably uh, listen to him. We're uh, doing this sermon series on what I've called the battle of the mind, uh, the battle for the proper mindset in life. Do you have a mindset of faith or do you have a mindset of fear? I mean, think about that and get that set because you have to win the internal battle if you're going to win the external battles in life. And, and almost all of it is... Uh, is the internal battle. Do you or do you not have a mindset of faith, and is it or is it not truly set? Are you always approaching life uh, with faith? Because that is our calling. When your mind is set on the sort of faith that expects victory always, then you will always win eventually. When your mind is set in the sort of faith that always expects victory, then you will always win eventually. Eventually. You think that's true? You think that's true? I think uh, for, uh, for people of faith, which ostensibly is what uh, most of us are, uh, I think we tend not to trust faith very much. And that is a way of summarizing uh, the internal battle. Uh, at least uh, that's true uh, for those of us who are imperfect. Um, any of you perfect? Because you get a high five, and then you'll get escorted to the door. We do not like your kind. Fear our opinion. When you can always think, God and I are going to do something great with this, whatever this is, when you can always think that, uh, then that means you have the mindset of faith. Whatever happens, whatever crisis happens, you know, whatever the traffic looks like, however people treat you, um, uh, whatever your computer does, if, if you can think in that moment, oh, God and I are going to do something great with this, then you've done it. Uh, then you have uh, the mindset of faith. And Jesus talks about, about faith. He talks about the mindset of faith, particularly, uh, in a ton of different ways and in a ton of different situations. And a lot of these... A lot of these uh, um, teachings are, uh, are well known to us. They're actually uh, often quite uh, famous even in popular culture. Um, if you have enough faith, then you can say to this tree, get up and move and it will obey you. If you have enough faith, if you really set in the mindset of faith, then you can say to this mountain, get up and move and it will listen to you. Those are things that Jesus actually said. And whether or not you think they're true, whether or not you trust it, that's up to you. But those are things that Jesus actually said. Uh, in that uh, 
that great scene where Jesus is walking on water and Peter in excitement, he gets up and he starts walking on water too and then Peter sinks in the waves and Jesus has to reach down and rescue him and pull him back up to the top of the waves. That must have looked so interesting. Uh, what Jesus says to Peter is, ye have little faith, or some translations, do you still have so little faith? You know, it's like you're supposed to have enough faith to walk on water. Jeez, Peter, we've been hanging out all this time and you still can't pull this off. Back in the boat. Nine times in the gospel, Jesus says something like, your faith has healed you. Good job. Words quite similar to that. Uh, we have mature faith. We talked about last week when our faith rests in God's nature as opposed to resting in what we think God will do in this situation. Do you have a great financial crisis in your life right now where you could think, I believe God is going to come through for me this time? Or you could believe God is always a provider. This is nature. And what you want to do is you want to believe the second thing. No matter what happens, God always provides for you, no matter how he provides. You know, whatever the crisis is, whether it's a financial crisis or a health crisis or a relational crisis or a professional crisis, it's, it's always the same. It is God's nature to want to bring you overcoming. It is God's nature. He's a dad. What dad doesn't want his kid to thrive? And if you can trust in that nature of God, okay, well, then you're on your way uh, to getting your mind set in faith so you won't be wishy-washy uh, the next time you hit trouble, the next time your computer crashes or the traffic snarls or somebody says a nasty thing to you. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be okay. Anyway, that's the mindset of faith. Uh, and it's worth knowing how that mindset gets defeated. It's worth thinking through what takes you down, um, as, uh, as we've done a little bit this morning. You know, what, what stresses you out? Uh, what freaks you out? What takes your feet out from under you? What takes, uh, what takes your, the wind out of your sails? Whatever metaphor uh, you want to chew, choose. Um, I think in life, uh, when our mindset of faith gets defeated, it's not that we don't have faith. It's not that we abandon faith. It's that we prioritize fear instead of faith. It's a matter of prioritization, right? We don't say, oh, I have no faith. I have believed incorrectly. God is not good after all. Like, we don't say that, you know? We say, yeah, but are you a person of faith or not? Well, yeah, but this keeps happening. So? Does the fact that you have a repeated challenge mean that God's nature has changed? You know, God, God's a provider. I believe that God's a provider, but you don't understand. I don't have enough money to pay rent. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a priority game. And I sympathize and I appreciate that because it's very human and we all go through it. Is this resonating? That's what we do, right? We say, yeah, but, yeah, but fear is better than faith right now. Fear is more justified than faith right now. Well, we don't actually say it. We just sort of feel it, right? And that's usually how we lose our mindset of faith. Uh, we just sort of careen into fear or doubt or worry or anxiety or nervousness or stress or whatever code name you want to use for fear. Uh, that's what we do. It's, it's, a, it's a priority thing. We cave into particular fears. We don't cave into fear generally. We just cave into 
this particular case of fear. Maybe it has to do with, well, stress about what people are going to think of you if dot, dot, dot. That's a common one. That's a common one that we bow to. One of our primary fears in life is what people think of us. Huge shaper. Our fear of what people think is an editor of our faith. We allow it to edit our mindset. That's how it works. And it's no wonder because a rejection can be a horrible experience. Have you ever been rejected by anybody? Anybody? How many of you are being rejected probably by the person you're sitting next to right now? You have a feeling. You have a feeling. You've been looking over your shoulder and you think, yeah, they don't like me. Right now, how many of you? Right? How many of you have been rejected by somebody you really loved and trusted? Raise your hand up. Be bold. You've been rejected hurtfully by somebody you really, somebody you really counted on. Great. How many of you were rejected by somebody that you really counted on and it was an unfair rejection? Go ahead. You can. It's not prideful today. All right. So I did that just because we see, oh, yeah, it's a very common experience, right? There are those of you who raised your hands, and then there were those of you who were shoot too shy to raise your hands. But we've all had that experience. And that's a, a horrible experience. And I think it's one of those experiences that is probably fundamental to just like, you know, the evolution of humans and human society and stuff like that. I mean, we are deeply, deeply conditioned to care about what the group thinks of us because, you know, back in, back in the old days, if we got rejected by our group, if we got rejected by our village, if we got rejected by our clan, we would literally die, right, to, to be a, an outcast back in, you know, those old hunter-gatherer days meant that you were going to perish. We humans have, you know, selected ourselves over time to care deeply over what the group thinks of us. It's one of our primal fears. It's truly primal. Uh, we have an image to uphold, and the image is, oh, we fit in. We fit in, right? And that's like a survival instinct uh, for humans. We prioritize it. The problem is that that priority often causes us uh, stress. We get stressed out when we look in the mirror. Uh, do I look attractive? Are people going to like this? It's very important that people like what they see when they see me. Primal, hardwired into your DNA, that concern. Uh, we uh, think about what people will think every time we make an important decision in life, particularly if it's a sacrificial decision, particularly if it's a decision that affects other people. We think about what people think of us every time we apply for a job. Well, you kind of have to, don't you? You kind of have to think about your image. You have to sell yourself, right? Got to dress for success. You have to use resume thinking. Do you know what resume thinking is? How many of you do resume thinking? Ah, yes, survival. Uh, every time we ask a stupid question, it's like, man, I should know the answer to this, but I don't. Should I ask the question? Survival instinct, you know, because we care very much whether people think we are clever, whether we have a contribution to make to this group, whether we belong here. And that stuff is hard-coded in us. Every time we ask for help, one of the things that runs in the back of our mind is, well, 
How is this going to change people's opinion of me? Every time we confess something embarrassing, right? Even, even to a friend, even to a good person, we have to think about, is this going to change their opinion of me? You know? And we have different ways of, of dealing uh, with, that, with that stress. This is something that I've had to uh, come up against uh, frequently uh, in, in my life. I remember uh, the first time I preached a sermon after I had uh, left my academic uh, career. Um, I was, uh, some of you know, pursuing uh, academia for a long time. I was a policy analyst. I was thinking that maybe I wanted to become a, a professor. Uh, and in some ways, I had done well. I'd gone to, you know, really elite schools. I finished up at working for a think tank at Harvard, which you would think, well, that's actually, that's, that's fairly good, a position at Harvard. But it was a temporary position, and I couldn't find a permanent job. And I had been at this for years and years, been on the job market for over four years without really getting a serious interview for anything uh, permanent. And I had to come, I, I came to this decision point, like, is this what I want my life to be? Do I want to be chasing this sort of professional success in this weird industry, or do I want to do something else? You know, because I felt like maybe God was calling me to do something else. And I remember how confronting that question uh, for the first time literally made me sick. What was I worried about? Well, if I walk away from this, what will people think? You know, will I carry the stench of failure for the rest of my life? And, and I remember I literally froze physically. I had a physical reaction to the thought. And I had to think about how to deal with it. Fast forward uh, uh, a year later, and I was uh, working for a church, and I was preaching a first sermon. And um, I had to uh, introduce myself to the congregation. Uh, so I said, well, those of you who don't know me, hello, uh, my name is Jordan. Uh, I am a failure. Let me tell you why. <laughs> and uh, that's how I started. I knew that if I didn't rush at it head on, it would haunt me for the rest of my life. And I share that little story because I think some of you have those stories. You failed at something, and it has, made, it has cracked your mindset permanently. You know, you have to run at things uh, like this. What are people going to think? What is so-and-so going to think? And the way we respond to the stress of what people think, uh, you know, can vary. We can be super sensitive. We can live our life according to opinion polls, um, like some politician. We can live our life controlled by those around us, constantly just kind of going with uh, the dominant people in our circle at any given time. Uh, it's one of Satan's number one ways of killing uh, Christian spirituality is just to get mixed up, get you mixed up with the wrong people. And you care more about what they think in the moment than what you know to be true. Another th strategy that people use is that they escape the stress of, uh, of thinking about what people think of them by cultivating an attitude of extreme not caring. You just kind of like, you know, flip the finger to the world and you make that your image. You live the image of the social rebel, right? Um, yeah, some of us do that a little bit. It's not a bad strategy, really. Um, it is empowering, at least in the short term. But what it does is it, 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 it eventually develops in you zero tolerance for input or evaluation, right? You sort of live according to the philosophy. Uh, you can admire me, or I will wall you off. You have two options. 
and um, rebellion is often about that. But sometimes this fear of man, this fear of what people think of you is simply something that makes you constantly nervous or constantly hesitant or constantly conservative in the way that you behave. It doesn't like totally defeat your mindset, but it erodes it, it edits it uh, on the edges. Uh, causes you to be shy, causes you to be less than bold in life, causes you to just get stuck in life for long periods of time. And if you're honest with yourself, you'd realize that the reason you're stuck, the reason you're not taking action, the reason you're just doing the same boring thing day after day is because, you know, fear of what people think has just tamed you. You've just become a tame person. The fear of what people think is a great complicator. It's a great compounder. Here's how it works. Let's go back to money problems. It's not just that you have a money problem in your life, but as soon as you have a money problem, you also have the additional problem of what people will think of your money problem. Right? That's how it gets you. Anyway, that's fear of man. You get it? Anybody resonate with that? Yeah? Say. Yes, I'm afraid. It's the first time I've ever asked you to say that in church. Um, just to be honest. Uh, just to be honest with ourselves. Now the goal. The goal. What, what, what is the antidote to fear of man? Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, you could say it's like the mindset of faith. that The goal of not being afraid of what people think is simply to not be afraid of what people think. Uh, but it's useful to kind of put personality to it. And, and what I think about is what I call humble independence. I think the goal is a humble independence. Um, you want to respect people. You want to respect their input. That's, that's the humility part. But without fear. And that's the independent part. You actually are as fully human as anyone else. You are as entitled as anyone else to have a thought in your head, not to be controlled, but nonetheless to be respectful of what people think and opinions that they have, because no man is an island, uh, to quote another popular proverb, not a Bible proverb, by the way. Or you might think of it as openness with objectivity. I'm open. I live a very open life. There are lots of people uh, involved in my life. I take input and opinions from a lot of people constantly about a lot of things. People are frequently evaluating me. There are some of you that are evaluating me right now. Can this guy preach? Do I want to stay at this church? I won't push that any farther. Um, you know, I need to be open to that sort of thing, but with objectivity. I need to live a life that is guided by truth, ultimately, more than people's opinion. Now, if your opinion helps me get in touch with truth, great, but I need to, you know, have a little independent objectivity about that, a way of thinking about that that is more dedicated to truth and popularity. And that's actually a, a hard uh, life skill. I like the opinions of good and wise people. Uh, they are often helpful to me, those opinions. I like positive peer pressure. That's one of the reasons we have Ohana groups, is you get together with people who are good and wise and loving 
and they do a little reality check for you because during your week you've probably been hanging out with a lot of people who might not always be good and might not always be wise and might not always be loving. So it's good to be with people who are at least trying to be wise and loving and, and it sort of brings you back to sanity, a positive peer pressure that pushes you toward health instead of pushing you toward insanity. Uh, my wife is, I think Sonia's with the kids, uh, but over the last year, she has, for the first time in her life, been exercising regularly. Yeah, now I've nagged her to exercise regularly for our entire relationship, which, you know, if you go back to like when we were friends in college, extends for uh, 34 years. Never exercise, not once. But, you know, we get, we get older, and these things tend to be more critical as time goes by. Uh, and so I... Uh, I, I made a plea uh, a little over a year ago, like, I just, I just want you to take care of yourself. I want you to exercise uh, routinely. You know, she was having some, you know, health concerns, the sort of things that hit you when you get to be 50. And, uh, and so what she did was very smart. She signed up uh, to go to one of these boot camp gyms and kind of made friends with the people there. So like every day at 8.30, she goes to this workout and the people expect her to come and, you know, they're very friendly, very supportive. She, she shopped around and found the place that had the most enthusiastic coaches. And uh, it was really expensive. I said, we will take out a second mortgage to pay for it. This is important. I sort of took that fear out of the equation. For an entire year, she's done this. You know, she can do a push-up. How many she can do? Just sit-ups. Uh, three times a week I catch her uh, in the mirror flexing her biceps because she's got biceps now, you know, she's like, she's getting chiseled. I'm just very, very proud of her because it's completely different uh, than uh, the way that she had behaved. And I, you know, I, I think the whole key has been, I mean, obviously I was not the key because for 30 some years she totally ignored me. But when she found a group, right, when she found an ohana that applied a positive sort of peer pressure, which works for her, you know, because Sonia is like misenthusiasm, right? Am I right? Anybody uh, who knows her? And so she responds to that really, really well. And it's just made a huge difference uh, in her life. And in spite of the stress I caused her, it probably has added 10 years to her life, you know. Um, she overcomes. I love that. I love positive peer pressure. Um, but I do try to own myself, no matter what group uh, I'm in. Um, and. And here's the key, I think. Uh, I am able to take people's input and yet kind of own myself and be suitably independent, provided that I am anchored in what God thinks of me. So what God thinks of me is more important than what you think of me, as awesome as you all are. Um, and, and that's the key. And I know that doesn't sound very fancy, uh, but it has to do, again, with sort of apprehending the true nature of God. God is nuts about me. God just, just really adores me. He thinks I'm, I'm totally cool. I am judged every day. One of the things about being a pastor is that you get judged in ways that other people do not get judged. My performance gets judged, you know, whether it's teaching or counseling or or administrating, uh, and people are not shy about grading my performance. 
and uh, sending me emails uh, with uh, short summaries of, uh, of their opinion. My value to people gets, get judged because none of you have to be here. None of you have to be in this church. And, and uh, one of the ways I often experience social stress is that people will come to the church for a period of time and, and get their life changed and meet maybe maybe meeting with me uh, frequently and make a lot of positive changes. And then when I cease to have immediate value, they will leave. And, um, and that tempts me to feel uh, a certain way. My value to you, my value to people generally, is always on the chopping block uh, in this sort of life uh, that I lead. And, you know, part of that is just the nature of things. You know, that, that's fine. My morality gets judged in a different way. Those of you who presume to be teachers shall be judged more harshly. Um, uh, we read uh, in the epistles. And a lot of people have an opinion of morality, my morality, Christians as well as non-Christians. I frequently get lumped in with headline-grabbing uh, spiritual leaders who failed morally. Whenever a, a, a spiritual leader fails, headline news, right? Um, and as a result, you know, I, I feel like I get more, more than, I get more than my fair share of love, I get more than my fair share of rejection. I brag that I'm God's favorite person on earth. Have you heard me do that? It's not really a brag, it's just kind of a thing. Uh, you know, I'm God's favorite person and you all are tied for second. Here's what I'm saying. The second I don't believe that, the second I don't believe that I'm God's favorite person on earth, I can no longer live the life that I'm living. The second I doubt that God is gaga nuts over me, I'm done. I'm done. I learned that uh, um, on the day I was uh, delivered of my depression. <laughs> and. I've never forgotten it. I'm not saying I always do it right, but that's the key. That was a very long-winded introduction. Here's our scripture for the day. It's from Matthew chapter 10. One of the many times in scripture where Jesus directly or indirectly addresses what, you know, the fear of man, the fear of what people think of you. And this is Jesus just kind of coaching up his, his, uh, his followers, his disciples, his agents. You know, he's going to send them out. Uh, more and more on their own, and so he's coaching them up. And he says, do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. For 180 times in the New Testament, we are commanded to not be afraid in one way, shape, or form. It is the most frequently um, cited command in all the Bible. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Do not worry. So Jesus starts out, don't be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. We'll talk about that phrase in a minute. When I tell you what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Well, that's a somber statement. Uh, rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Literal word there is Gehenna, uh, the uh, cemetery valley. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fail, fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. 
So whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. In other words, your fear of what people think has eternal consequences. Be careful, guys. Uh, so do not be afraid of them. I uh, starts there, for there is nothing concealed that will not be discussed or hidden that will not be made known. All right, look at me. There is nothing in your life that's hidden that will not be made known. Does that make you feel more or less afraid of what people think of you? Like if everything about you was public knowledge, would you be more or less afraid of people? Probably more, right? Probably more. Um, so it's a weird counterintuitive statement. What exactly is Jesus saying here uh, with this verse? I think he's saying everybody is in that boat, right? There is nothing hidden that will not be uh, made known. If somebody has a better public image than you, it's just because their hidden bits have not been made known yet. Everybody ought to be humble. Everybody is human. Nobody is perfect squared. I mean, you know, that's like really true, uh, Jesus is saying. So, so live accordingly. You know, in the end, we're all going to be embarrassed, unless we're just kind of forgiven. <laughs> uh, and that's the hope of the gospel message uh, that Jesus uh, preaches. Everybody is afraid in life. You've heard me say that a lot. And that sort of comes from teachings like this. Uh, you're in front of some person. Maybe that person is intimidating you a little bit. Are you worried about what that, people think, that person thinks of you? Here's something to remember. That person is afraid. That person is afraid. And, and the more impressive their public image is, there's a good chance the more afraid they are uh, because they have to be particularly careful to hide all of the embarrassing bits. Everybody is afraid. Everybody. And that's a great equalizer. I love that. You know, one of the things that makes me feel is that my mindset of faith is, is actually more valuable. And anybody who moves in true faith will be very attractive. You know, your attitude is the most contagious thing about you. If you truly do move in the mindset of faith, you'll be a magnet to people. All sorts of people will be huddling around you because everybody is afraid. Don't be afraid of them. They're all afraid of you, and if not you individually, people like you. That's what Jesus is saying. I don't know. That, that to me is a very comforting opening statement. So he says, when I, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear proclaim uh, from the roofs. You can't, you can't be a closet Christian, or more generally, you can't be shy about your faith. What we do is we express, express hesitancy in our social circles. You know, something comes up, it's a crisis at work or a problem at school or, or whatever, and we are afraid to say, no, it'll be fine. God is going to bless us through this. Like, we don't, we don't say that because we're afraid of looking silly. You know, we're, we're afraid of, of being that person. Um, and Jesus is like, no, no, man, you got you to gotta declare 
God, and particularly you've got to declare the goodness of God. You've got to declare your trust in God. And what this does is it has an inoculating effect. The more you declare your trust in God, well, the more you have to trust God. The more you say good things that God has said to you, the more you actually have to live in what God has said to you. And that's a powerful way to live. That helps you be unafraid. Jesus is coaching us up in sort of cultivating the mindset of faith over and against the fear of what people think. The more public you are, the, more you, the, the less you are afraid of the public. That makes sense? Are you following? Get it out there. Be out there. Be declaratory. Draw the line in the sand. You know, I'm a person of faith, just so you know. You know, and cultivate, you know, that sort of image, even if it makes you feel really vulnerable. Because it's a vulnerable lifestyle uh, to put yourself out there like that. Uh, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but not, cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. <clears throat> Sober, you know. Uh, and this is Jesus just injecting a, a heavy dose of reality here. It's like, really? You're afraid of people? Why? It's God who determines your eternity. So whose opinion should you think about more? All right, how many of you already knew that? How many of you already knew that God's opinion of you was more important than people's opinion of you? All right, so you already knew that. Already knew that. That's why Jesus doesn't stop the teaching there. He goes on, and he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care? And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God can send you to judgment in hell. Think about that. Now, he loves you so much that he's got the very hairs on your head number. He has a spreadsheet of your hair. All right? And so I think those two lines totally have to work together. You already knew that God's opinion of you is more important than people's opinion of you. Yet you're still scared because you don't think God's opinion of you is very generous. That's the problem. That's the problem. You don't believe that you're God's favorite person on earth, and therefore you have to worry about whether you're that person's favorite person. So you don't really trust God's opinion of you, do you? Why? Because you're focused on your nature. And let's face it, you kind of suck. But instead, why don't you focus on God's nature, which is like he's got a spreadsheet for your hair. Right now, some of you bald guys are like, oh, crud. <laughs> I see the looks. I see the looks. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Everything about you, he's, he's obsessive about in, in, in a good way because he just cares that much. I mean, even the sparrows, you know, they get, they get food, and, 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 and God tracks all of them, and, and they're not worth very much in our estimation, but in God's estimation, they're eternally and infinitely valuable. 
he keeps track of each one. So of course he's going to keep track of each of us uh, here today. He's saying it goes to what God thinks of you. Um, do you think God thinks well of you? If you don't, you will obsess about what people think of you. If you don't think God thinks well of you, then you will obsess about what people think of you. That's the formula. Do you get it? you get it? And so what Jesus is really saying is, get to know what God thinks of you. He might not be as judgmental as you fear. He has a file on you this thick, and it's glowing with affection. That's the Jesus message. Amen? That's what's going on here. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he sums up the teaching where he started. Whoever acknowledges me before others, whoever is out there with a mindset of faith and God's goodness, I will also acknowledge before my uh, Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me, if you live a craven life, if you live your life according to what people think of you, uh, it's going to have eternal consequences because, you know, there is a judgment. Uh, we can talk about that some other time, how it works. Uh, but you don't get judged because God doesn't love you, I'll tell you that. Uh, you get judged because you reject the love of God. So how do you defeat the fear of people? Uh, we'll sort of close with this. Um, the fear of what people think or will think if such and such happens. Uh, later on in this series on the battle uh, of the mind, uh, we'll go over general attitudes and practices that we can cultivate to help us set our minds strongly in faith. There are some things generally that uh, we can do to kind of get anchored uh, in the right mindset so that it becomes permanent and unmoving. But for now, in particular, how do you defeat fear of people? So here's my advice. Practice. Practice. I think the fear is deadly enough that you should just think about, you know, attacking it head on uh, from time to time uh, in different ways. Um, one of the ways um, I've, I've seen uh, a lot of anxious people uh, deal with fear of what people think is through fasts of different sorts. A fast is anything, any way in which you deprive yourself for a period of time for spiritual reasons. Uh, I had uh, a friend uh, um, back in the day in a place where I worked uh, who was very anxious about what people thought of her, and she was just coming to faith, uh, and she realized that this was a stronghold in her life, and in particular, she was afraid about how people uh, looked at her physically. That was sort of a hang-up for her. So what she did is that she started wearing bandages on her face, even though she didn't have any wounds. She wouldn't wear makeup, but she'd put like a Band-Aid across her nose like that. And she would just do that for two weeks at a time or some other such thing. And then people would say, what happened? And she would say, nothing. And just go on. Uh, and, uh, and everybody was staring at her. And she knew it ought to make her feel awkward. And so it was just practicing not feeling awkward. I thought, that's genius. That's genius. If next week 60 of you come with bandages on your face. I'll make you feel as awkward as I possibly can just to sort of help you along. But it's just an example of the sort of creativity you can bring to this process. 
You know, it's a way of declaring, I'm not really afraid of what you think of my appearance. I'm not really afraid of what you think of my fill-in-the-blank, fill-in-the-blank. And those sorts of exercises are worthy exercises in life. I had another friend who, who became a super powerful pastor uh, when he was in college. Uh, it was very unpopular uh, to be a Christian on his campus. And so uh, he just got really tired of his cowardice because he had opportunities to share the gospel and he just wasn't doing it. And so uh, he, uh, he went to like a Christian bookstore and he got like a t-shirt that said uh, John 3.16. And he got buttons that said, you know, like, Jesus is coming, really bright buttons and stuff like that. He bought the biggest cross he could find, cross pendant, and wore it. He even got a, a hat uh, that said, you know, praise the life, forget what it said, you know, something really Christian-y. And he just spent the rest of the school year wearing clothes and buttons like this, just so whenever he stepped into the room, everybody thought he was a Jesus freak. And while he wouldn't normally do that, he just wanted to get it settled once and for all. And I thought, well, that's genius, right? That's sort of a, a fast, a way, a way of practicing that. I uh, knew another guy who uh, was, uh, thought he was gifted in healing, wanted to heal sick people, but was afraid to approach them at work or um, um, in the neighborhood or something. So he made a vow that he would pray for every sick person he saw, no matter where he saw them, for, I forget what the period was, it might have been 40 days on the bus. This was like in a big city, so like he was constantly uh, bumping up against sick people. He prayed for like a hundred strangers in a month or something like that. And it was just sort of a, a vow that he made for 40 days he was going to do it. And of course, he had a lot of terribly awkward interactions. Of course, he had a lot of great testimonies as well, right? But it was just a way for him to settle uh, the deal. Uh, one of the things I would recommend to you, uh, I have done this on occasion, is to keep a journal for a week of every time you think about what people think of you. Because awareness is the first step to correcting anything. And just like, you can do it with a smartphone, like last time I did it, um, you know, I didn't have one of these, but it could just be like, uh, I, I, I just worried about what Mary thinks of my shirt, you know, just little things like that. or. Uh, I see two people falling asleep. I have preached long. I'm worried, you know. I get to, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm watching you. Yeah, that's, that's how I know how I'm doing. How many people have fallen asleep? My record? We won't even go there. Um, and then just keep a track of this so that you realize, dang, I think about this every eight seconds. Uh, because that might be true. Might be true. Awareness is key. And then, you know, there's one practice that is, of course, Christian tradition. It has been bread and butter for us for over 2,000 years, and that's the discipline of, what am I going to say? Exactly. Because you are well-schooled traditional Christians. You all know this. That's confession, of course. Uh, the sacrament of confession that you confess your sins one to another uh, so that you can be released uh, from them. Um, you have Ohana groups, uh, 240 of you or something, what's the number? You know, half of you have Ohana groups at least. Half of you should get one soon. Um, every once in a while, you know, pull aside somebody that you think is a good person. Make sure you do this with a good person. 
as near as you can judge, and say, man, I did something stupid this week. Here's what it was. And then that person will say to you in good blue water fashion, you are forgiven in Jesus' name. And that will be the end of it right there. Right? It's not a counseling session. It's a confession, which automatically leads to a forgiveness. Because in the kingdom of God, forgiveness is easy. Ridiculously easy. It's ridiculously easy to be forgiven. It can be a wee bit of a struggle to accept forgiveness, but that's a different story. That's a different story. But being forgiven, getting it, is, is, is quite easy. And um, do things like this over time and practice, and what you'll, what you'll find is that your mindset is starting to take shape. Uh, you're starting to become a less hesitant person. I'm giving you advice on, on these things because I know it to be important. Um, because the worst way to live is afraid. The most important thing in life might be to be unafraid. It might be the most important thing. Without faith, it is impossible to believe God. Uh, we're told. Um, well, faith is possible to please God. Did I say that right? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, if you are afraid, fear is the opposite of faith. Everything gets plugged up. That's why I say the most important thing in life uh, maybe you know, just to live unafraid. And this is a fear that has a chokehold over a lot of us that edits uh, our faith uh, quite frequently. So let's resolve uh, to get rid of it. Turn to the person to your left or right and say, I'm not afraid of you. The good start. That's a really good start. Uh, Father God, uh, I do pray that you perfect your agenda for each one of us uh, before we go uh, today. Um, I pray that you would uh, change us all a little bit, that you would free us all a little bit more so that we could walk out of here less burdened than we were when we walked in. Uh, I pray, Lord, that we would have fun at play in the fields of the Lord, that we would find joy in living uh, freely from what people uh, think of us. Make us humble, make us independent in our knowledge of your love for us. And I thank you that we're each your favorite person on earth. In Christ's name, amen.